I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang songs of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and in heaven, in the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the testimony, it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Father, we come to You this morning again and, oh, there's no one like You. There is no God like You. There is no Savior like You. There is no friend of the sinner like You. God, You have loved us with an everlasting love. And God, even while we were still sinners, You sent Your Son to pay the ultimate price that we might be reconciled to You. God, You've given us everything for life and godliness. And Father, You've given us Your Word, and in particular the book of Revelation as we're studying that now, to reveal the future, to reveal Your purposes, to warn us, to warn the world, to caution us, to help us to live wisely, to give ourselves to things that last. And we pray, Father, that You would open our understanding and help us to apply what we learn today. And Holy Spirit, once again, we come to You and ask that You would have Your way in our hearts. I pray especially that You would take my mouth and my mind and my life as I speak and use it for Your glory and for the uplifting and encouragement of those that Jesus Christ loves so deeply. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Last week we talked about the proclamation of the eternal gospel by the angels. It was really, it's a remarkable passage. And um, I got kind of um, carried away. God had me share some extra things and I wasn't able to finish chapter 15. And and I'm not really going to finish chapter 15 except to say that in a cursory fashion, summing it up, the final part of uh, the chapter uh, 14, I'm sorry, about the harvest of the earth really has to do with the judgment of God and the coming wrath uh, in God's judgment of the world. He talks about two types of harvest, the harvest of wheat and the harvest of grapes, and they both have to do with this tremendous wrath that's coming upon the world and actually is predictive of some of the passages that we're going to be looking at today as well as the passages that we'll be looking next week in chapter 16 when we come to the seven bold judgments of God. But in the course of that judgment, the Bible says that 
God's wrath coming really at the time of Armageddon will be so intense that all the nations of the world will gather in the valley of Megiddo. It's called Armageddon. And they will gather to fight. Can you believe this? They're going to fight God. I'm just thinking. They've got, it's, it's, it's so outrageous and ridiculous to think that they can actually defeat God and yet in the deception of the enemy they will come against God Almighty and against His Christ and attempt to battle Him and His people. And it's going to be a slaughter. It's not really a battle. It's actually... It's not really named, it's called a battle, but it's not really even a battle because there's no actual war. They gather and God just said, that's it, it's over. And the Bible says that the slaughter is so great that for 180 miles from the very northern part of Palestine and Israel to the very southern part of Israel, 180 miles approximately, will be about four and a half feet deep in blood as the nations of the world gather to defeat God's chosen people and to fight against the Lamb. That brings us to this passage that we've read this morning in verse in chapter 15 because this is really an introduction to the beginning of the end. It's the last outpouring of God's wrath and His judgment on the earth, the seven bold judgments. Now, by way of review, we've got to go back just a little bit and remember that we looked first at the seven seal judgments. The seventh seal was an introduction to the seven trumpet judgments. And the seventh trumpet judgment then became an introduction to these seven bowl judgments that are being introduced by John today. And John says in this opening verse that he saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. We've already seen two of those signs in chapter 12 with the woman representing Israel and then the beast representing Satan. Now these signs are called great because of the awesome power of these judgments. And they're called marvelous because they represent the final vindication of God's people and His divine judgment against everything in the world that's wicked. John sees these seven angels with the seven last plagues. And he says last because in them the wrath of God is completed. The word plague, it means a a stripe or a wound. It's a blow. But it really, in this context has to do with just a a travesty, a calamity that's taking place on earth as a result of man's sin. And it's final because with them, all of God's judgments, the fullness of His wrath will have been completed and poured out. It means fulfilled, that, that everything that God has planned for this particular period of time in His judgment will be done. Nothing will be unfinished. In fact, we're going to look at an interesting scripture in the last part of chapter 16 where with the last judgment of God, it says it's finished. Ever hear that before? Anywhere? On the cross of Christ. It was finished. The fulfillment of all of God's purposes were completed. One of the things about these tribulations that we've talked about that is really an an indication of the grace and mercy of God, although it may not seem that way on first blush, is that they're progressively severe. We've talked about that. I won't spend much time on this except to say that they're progressively severe for a reason. God could have poured out all of His judgment immediately in a a moment. It could have been done. He could have just come and, and had no tribulation at all and come, judge the world and send people to hell that didn't believe and, and, and draw, drew to himself those that did believe in God. But he has this progressively severe judgment that takes place on earth. Why? For the purpose of giving man a final opportunity to repent 
and find life. He doesn't want anyone to miss life. He wants everyone to be saved. But as we talked last week, he will not force anyone. And yet for those who, to the end, refuse and rebel and continue in wickedness against God, there is a final punishment awaiting them that God promises in the scripture and that we're studying in the book of Revelation. Now, there's a principle here that I want to I mention and encourage us with. This is the principle. And I found it's true in Scripture. It's true in my own experience. And I'm sure that most of us, if you've been walking with the Lord any length of time at all, you can relate to. This is the principle. When we find ourselves as believers walking away from God's will, there's some area in our life where we've, we're sinning and we know it and, and uh, we're just disobedient. We've kind of hardened our heart and we say, you know, I want to follow God. And we raise our hands in the worship service and everything. But deep in our hearts, we know that there's an area that we have not given to God. The Holy Spirit has been speaking to us. We know it's wrong, and yet we continue. It might be anger. It might be uh, you know, some sort of immorality in our life. It might be just an area of disobedience. It might be just having a rebellious heart against God, or maybe even an employer, or against a spouse. There might be, it could be any number of things. You know what your areas of struggle are. But along the way, God gives us these open doors of opportunity, oftentimes through the Word of God as we just read and He speaks to us. And it's so gentle. And it's sometimes almost too gentle. You know what I'm saying? It's so gentle that we ignore it. And then He speaks to us through a message or through a tape or a book or a brother or sister that comes to us and addresses the issue. And then we, it's like, whoa, this is getting a little too close. And, and then we resist a little bit more. But then eventually God escalates our discomfort have you ever noticed that, how God can do that? He is really good at it. It's not to hurt us or to harm us, but it's out of His intense love for us because He doesn't want us to self-destruct. He doesn't want our spiritual life to be undermined even by our own foolishness. And so He comes alongside of us in the gentleness of His love and His compassion. He begins to woo us to Him. And then when, when we can't be wooed, He begins to apply a little pressure. I've had this happen in my life. It's very discomforting. And all of a sudden, the pressure gets a little greater and a little greater, and, and God's speaking to me, and sometimes things happen in my life, I start experiencing consequences to my sin. Anybody ever have consequences to your sin? <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's like, man, you're feeling the pressure from this side and that side, and, and God is speaking to you, and other people are saying stuff to you, and it's like, whoa, you know, it's like, He's after me, and wants me to change. And God will continue to do that. Some people, and maybe you're one of those people this morning, and I've been there before, have resisted so long that our life is a shambles. Everything is just falling apart. Our financial picture doesn't look good. Our marriage is bad. Our relationships with other people are strained because of our unfaithfulness and our disloyalty and you know, all kinds of problems, our, our mistreatment of others. And the pressure grows and grows and grows. And can I encourage you with a, just a word of exhortation? Maybe God is trying to say something. <laughs> I know I've had to have sometimes just get hit on the side of the head with a two-by-four by the Lord before I pay attention. But you know, I believe that oftentimes the things that happen in our lives that are so stressful, especially the, the areas of finances and our marriage and children, relationships, God is like a megaphone. He's like saying... Please respond that you might receive the blessing of the Lord. And so these people that God is judging during these final days, He is begging them 
to respond before it's too late. An appropriate response for a believer as we grow in maturity and as we grow up in our walk with God is that he doesn't need a megaphone or a two-by-four anymore. All he needs is to speak to us ever so softly through his spirit and through the word of God. And when we read the word, it's not, no, I'm not going to do that or yes, I'll do this, but I don't like this part. No, it's not like that. A, A genuinely mature believer will look at the word of God, read it and say, that's all I needed to hear. I will obey. But for those who finally refuse his love and fail to respond to his loving rebukes, they will inevitably be experiencing the poured out wrath of God. Now John says that he sees what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea were those who had been victorious. This sea of glass, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we've studied this already in Revelation chapter 4-6, but it's really a reference in the Old Testament to the bronze labor. It was, it was just a big bowl. It's a shallow bowl that was big that the priests, when they came in to do the worship and to make sacrifice, that they had to do all this cleansing. And it was very intricate and very detailed and very specific in terms of what God required. And the purpose was is so that they wouldn't be unclean before God in presenting their sacrifice to God. And in this, uh, um, in this temple that, that John is seeing that's opened up for him that we're going to uh, see and talk about in just a few minutes, he sees the sea of glass, but it's not just the, the sea anymore, but it seems to be a sea of glass and also this time mixed with fire. And it's a reference to uh, the judgment of God that's coming. Instead of being filled with water, it's filled with uh, water that's on fire. And how do you mix the two? I don't understand it. But that's what John saw. It's a symbol of really the judgment of God that's coming. His perfect justice and, and wrath that's about to be revealed against an unbelieving and unrepentant world. And John, next to the sea, or if uh, some of your translations say standing on the sea, and actually that's more accurate... Um, the NIV says uh, beside, but uh, epi in the Greek, it actually generally in this context means standing on. They're standing on the sea, and we've talked about this before, that it has to do with the, with the completed finished work of Christ. We, you know what's so exciting is that in the Old Testament you had to do all this washing, and man, 618 some odd commandments that they had to follow. And now, through the finished work of Christ... That, that sea, that water that had to be used for washing now is, is, is solid crystal. It's a finished, completed work of Christ so strong that any believer who has put their trust in God can stand on it and know that they are absolutely clean and purified in Christ forever and ever and ever. Now we're told that these saints had victory. It means to conquer or prevail. How did they gain victory? Does anybody even remember? Let's turn. Revelation 12. 11. We're going to find out how they gained victory. They overcame him regarding Satan and his purposes by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. These people were completely sold out. The first thing was the blood of the Lamb, the finished work of Christ. The word of their testimony, they were not ashamed to proclaim the gospel. And they didn't love their lives so much as to even shrink from death. Now, who were they victorious over? Well, we're told over the beast, Satan, the Antichrist, his whole power. They were 
victorious over his image, which has to do with the forced worship of this idol that was set up, that probably, although we don't know for certain, has uh, uh, cultic prostitution attached to it that would divert people's total loyalty to God, and then over the number of his name, which had to do with economic sanctions. Remember, if they didn't have the mark, what happened? You couldn't eat, you couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you had no job. They just crushed you with sanctions. And these people were victorious because they were willing to give up everything to obey God. And I have to admit, when I consider these tribulation saints, I'm very humbled and motivated and challenged. Because in our time, we have to give up so very little to follow Christ. And I wonder to myself how I would fare under these conditions of persecution where everything was on the line. And it meant a great deal of suffering. But again, God is honored by this kind of a total devotion to Him. How much more is God calling us to be a people who are called out when we have such great freedom to use that freedom and that opportunity that He's, that he's given us to complete His purposes? What I find interesting about this is that there's a great irony in this little passage because they gained the victory over the beast by dying. That's how they were victorious. They were victorious through the blood, but also that they didn't love their lives so much as to fear death. And so they actually gained a victory in the most bizarre ways by dying. So all of Satan's hordes are having a party thinking, man, we've killed them, we've slaughtered them, they're finished, we're finally rid of these Jesus people. And then at that moment that they die, they're ushered into the presence of God Almighty and they're given a crown of victory. Isn't that strange? I find that so interesting. God is able to take apparent defeats and turn them on the head of the enemy and turn them into great victories, much as he did in the death and resurrection of his own son, Jesus Christ. Now these saints, these tribulation saints, were given harps by God. Uh, This isn't the first time we've seen harps in the book of Revelation. We saw them actually in chapter 5 when they sang the Song of the Lamb, which we'll talk about in just a few moments. But the 24 elders had these harps. I mean, there's something about harps in heaven that you've got to... Harps, worship, harps, they go together. And every time you see them worshiping, they break out the instruments. And I don't know why we don't have a listing of other instruments, but it just seems to be harps. So they, 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 God gives the 24 elders harps. What for? So that they can impress each other? Show off? You know, see who could get the better licks on that, you know, that harp? No. They were given these instruments for the sole purpose of worshiping God and honoring Him. And that's, you know, I, I'm just prompted to say that this is what worship is about. Our voices, our thoughts, our abilities, whatever God has given us, have been given for His worship and glory. And so when we gather here on Sunday morning, it's not about singing songs or, oh, that's my favorite or I don't like that one or anything like that, but it's about worship. It's about whatever God has given us to bring to Him what He is due. We find the same thing happening in Revelation 14, verses 2 and 3 that we studied last week. The hosts of heaven having harps that worship God. And now here we have the martyred tribulation saints given harps by God in order to worship Him. And they have an interesting theme. 
There are actually two themes of their worship. The first is the song of Moses. Does anybody know the song of Moses? Not very many of us do. It's not one of those passages that we memorize. But the song of Moses, there are actually two songs of Moses. One is found in Exodus 15, and we won't turn there. They're both lengthy, and Deuteronomy 32. But I'd encourage you in your free time to go back this week and to begin to kind of look at those. They're amazing. But they're worship songs. They're worship for God's deliverance. Now, Moses' song was a celebration of the deliverance of the people of God when they were living in the land of Egypt. We know the story. I don't need to go through it again. But they were enslaved. And God delivered them through Moses. And if you recall, part of the deliverance was that over the doorposts of the houses of the Jews in the final plague, which was the killing of the firstborn, God instructed the Israelites to place blood over the top of the doorpost. And that the angel of death who would come as the, the one who would inflict this punishment, very much like these last plagues we're looking at in the book of Revelation, this angel of death would come, but he would pass over anyone who had the, door, the blood applied to the door of their house. Now it's interesting because not only was there a great deliverance of the firstborn of the Jews being spared, but there was also the deliverance of actually the, the people of Israel. You remember when they got to the Red Sea and they were, they were surrounded? They, they, the, the, Israel, the Egyptians were coming from behind. They had mountains on both sides and they had the Red Sea. And there were at least a couple million of them, if not more. No way could they cross. It was flood stage. And God opened the way where there was no way. There's a song about that that I love. God can make a way where there is no way. And that's what he did. And so this song of Moses really touches on both of these themes. The the theme of God's deliverance uh, from the angel of death, but also the theme of deliverance from their enemies. And actually both of these themes are picked up in the song of Moses. And this is why it relates so closely to the song of the Lamb. Because the song of the Lamb is also a song about deliverance. It's a song about the Lamb of God. In fact, in the scripture, this song of the Lamb, you know what it means? It means little lamb. In the Greek, it says little lamb. Not big, burly lamb, you know? But it's a little lamb. The little lamb of God, born of a virgin, who bled and died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so the scripture tells us that even as the blood was applied in the time of Moses to the doorframe of the house, that any man or woman who applies the blood of Christ through faith to the heart that God has given us, the Bible says that that man or that woman will be spared the coming wrath of these plagues. So both of these songs are a response a grateful heart celebrating this magnificent deliverance of God all the way to the Old Testament and all the way to the work of Jesus Christ. Now, what is the song of the Lamb? Because, you know, it's identified in the Old Testament as a song of Moses, but we really don't have a song in the New Testament that says as a chapter heading, Song of the Lamb. But I think the psalm that they're referring to is actually in Revelation 5, and you can turn there briefly. Do you remember when the Lamb was given the scroll? The only one that was worthy to take the scroll was the Lamb of God. And what happened? As soon as, that, as soon as the Lamb was able to receive that scroll, the 24 elders went ballistic. They just went off on worship. 
And what did they say about the lamb? Listen to what they said in verse um, 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. I believe that's the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is about His redemption, about His forgiveness, about the inheritance that we have in Christ, about His desire to walk with you and to know you and to use you for His purposes and glory that you might be a sharer in the final inheritance of Christ. Now, what's the substance of these songs? Well, we find the substance in verse 3, the latter part of verse 3. The first thing that John hears coming from these saints that have been slain for their faith is great and marvelous are your deeds great and marvelous are your deeds there's a psalm 111 that Gary read so wonderfully this morning that says great are the works of the Lord they are pondered by all who delight in them can you relate to that aren't there times when you just ponder and you think and you meditate on the greatness of the deeds of God we were doing that just yesterday actually my son had his birthday and we were down at the beach and some friends were there and we were just talking about the answers to prayer of God what we were doing was exactly what the psalmist was saying is that we were delighting in the mighty and wonderful marvelous deeds of God and can I encourage you with something the body of Christ believers we should be occupied with this kind of activity often often we have the mighty deeds of God that are revealed in Scripture from beginning to end. It's the Bible is just loaded with incredible stories. I mean, we get so used to it, we, we kind of get uh, a bit callous to it. But if you can open your heart to see, this is the most fantastic book with the most incredible stories that give life at the same time that has ever been known to man. And if you read it and you study it, you will have occasion to ponder and delight on and in the marvelous works of God. But you know, God doesn't leave it there. He says, I want you to personally experience some of my creative and specific and unique mighty deeds in your life. And so he blows us away as we walk in obedience to him. And he does incredible things. And he loves us and he ministers to us. And we have this collection of mighty deeds. I've, I've been a Christian quite some time and I've got this whole collection in my mind of the mighty deeds of God and I love to recount them. And if you've been a Christian any length of time, you've got the whole collection too. And God honors it. And I'm telling you, something happens in your heart when you give yourself to the pondering and delighting in these mighty deeds of God. Our faith is built and we're encouraged and we're lifted. And it honors the Lord. And so I encourage you to be a man or a woman or a young person who's frequently pondering the mighty deeds of God. They go on and say, Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Deuteronomy 32 tells us that He is the rock. His ways are perfect. And all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Have you ever felt like God just kind of gave you a bad deal? Every once in a while I'll talk to people that will say, you know, I'm, I'm really upset with God. And I'm thinking, wow. <laughs> I can understand being upset with God, but how can you be upset with somebody that never does anything wrong? If, if you're feeling that God has somehow wronged you or closed a door in your life, Watch out, be ready, thank him because he's got something good coming for you. He closed the door because he wanted to open something else that's better. So never never have the attitude of, oh man, I'm bummed at God, you know, he really did me wrong. 
Because the Bible says he's always right and he's always just and he's always fair. And whatever is happening in your life, if you will surrender yourself totally to him and to his purposes, he will turn it around and begin to bless you. And he will lift you. And he will honor you. He's just in that he's perfectly righteous. And he's true in that he always, always, always keeps his promises. Now there are two rhetorical questions that these saints cry out to God. And they're really not meant to be answered except in the affirmative. One of the questions that he says is, Who will not fear you, O Lord? Who will not fear you? We talked about this last week. A lot of people think that the fear of the Lord is just to kind of, you know, worship God and have like a reverence for God. But there's more power to this phrase than that. And we talked about this. It means to have a, a, a wholesome dread of displeasing God. That we wouldn't want to do anything to dishonor His name. And I shared with you personal experiences in my own life where it's not just... I wish it were for me. I'm not, that, I'm not at that place yet. I wish I were where I could be like Joseph and said, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? Sometimes it's like, how could I do such a thing? I know He's going to make me come back and get this right. And so I don't want to go back. I don't want to make a mess of things because I don't want to have to go back. And so sometimes just the consequences hold me in check. But nothing's wrong with that. But I'm aiming at having a heart where it's like, how could I do such a thing against God? It doesn't matter what the consequences are, good or bad. I would never want to dishonor God. And that is having a true fear of the Lord. Jesus actually spoke about this when he was teaching in Luke 12. He was talking to his disciples and to others that were listening and he says, My friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. He says, The one you should fear is the one who not only can kill the body but after you're dead is to throw you into hell. That is the one to fear. Now, do we have anything to be afraid of with God? Absolutely not. But he does punish wickedness. And if you're a believer and you're walking in disobedience to God, he will hem you in out of his love and cause distress in your life until you will bow the knee before him. My encouragement is that why would we even make him go through that trouble? Why not? Let's just be a people that just completely give ourselves to him all the time. Every time. And whatever he says, we just, the answer is yes. It's like before he speaks, the answer is yes. And before you hear a sermon, if it's from the, the Word of God and I'm teaching what the Bible says, the answer is yes. I used to go to church when I was a younger believer and in my heart, before I got to church, I'd say, God, yes. I don't know what he's going to talk about. I don't know what the topic is, but the answer is already yes for whatever you want for my life. That honors God and I think that that's the kind of people that God wants us to be. Now they ask another rhetorical question saying, Who will not bring glory to your name for you alone are holy? We have the same question in Exodus 15, part of the Song of Moses that we're talking about. It says, Who among you or who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Is there anybody like God? Have you found anyone like God? If you've been truly changed by God, is there any other God that you'd rather be serving? You're thinking, gee, I don't know about this. I, maybe that God that makes me you know, work my way to heaven. That would be kind of an interesting experience. Or maybe the God that requires me to give up everything and you know, walk around in a flowing robe. And maybe that's what I need. Is there any God like God? Is there any Savior like Him? Is there anyone that loves you so deeply and accepts you in Christ 
and says you're purified and clean and he receives you as his son or daughter? Is there a God that, that promises you an inheritance in Christ that belongs to his own son? Is there another God that gives his presence dwelling in you where you don't have to go to some guru or some mediator but he himself delivers his spirit in our hearts? Is there a God like that? Is there another God that promises salvation? I don't know of one other religion that guarantees salvation. Christianity stands alone. It promises and assures us of salvation. There is no God like him. Even the the 24 elders, when they're worshiping the Lamb in Revelation 4.8, they say there is no one like him. He alone is holy. It means set apart. It means that he's pure, completely undefiled. And what are the, what are the 24 elders cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I know this may sound a little dorky. Let's say it together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now we said it. Now I want you to say it and let's worship him as we say it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There is no one like him. He stands alone in his perfection and his beauty. We're told that the inspiration of his song also includes the fact that all the nations of the world will worship and we're told that in Psalm 86 9 through 10, all of them, believer and unbeliever alike, will come before the Lamb of God and they will worship at his feet, and appropriately so. Now, one thing that's interesting about heaven is that it's so different from the earth, is that there will be no self promotion, there will be no self centeredness. There will be no self-importance or aggrandizement. That's going to be a change. (laughs) That's going to be a big change. You know what the focus and the center of attention will be? The glory and the worship of God and His Lamb. That's all. It's not going to be about us. It's going to be about Him. It's not going to be about everything that we want to have happen in heaven for us. It's going to be about Him. But the beautiful thing about God that we don't have to wait to heaven, get to heaven to experience is that as we give ourselves fully to God even now, He will meet every need far beyond your expectations if you will give yourself fully to Him here on earth. Jesus modeled this life. In every way, He was shouting, This isn't about me. It's about the Father. What does the Spirit say? It's about me, me, me. Does He draw attention to Himself? No. It's about the Son. What's the role of a believer then? If this is the case for the Son and the Spirit, that their whole objective was to reveal and draw attention to the work of God. God has a great heart for men and women who will leave behind self. To do it, you will have to die. You will have to die daily, as Paul said. Recognizing that this life is not your own. It's been paid for. You've been bought at a price. And now God says, with everything that you have and everything that you are, I want you to bring glory to me. And we have this incredible opportunity. Not later when we don't have any other choice, but right now. Right now. You can live a life 
that's not focused on yourself. But you'll need the power of God to do it because it's impossible for us in our flesh. But as you focus your attention, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, and as you spend time in the Word and are washed in the Word and renewed by the Word, and as the Spirit works in you just a passion for Him, gradually the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And all of a sudden your desires will be for His glory and for His mercy and His grace and His honor and His pleasure. And the funny thing, the irony of all of this is that God will give you what you haven't even asked for if you focus on Him. On the other hand, if you want to gain your life in this life, the Bible says you will lose it. So if you spend it on yourself, or if I spend it on myself, I end up losing and I'm chasing the phantom success. But with God, if I'm willing to give it up and give myself completely to Him, in the most remarkable way, He begins to bless and lift me. And it's like, whoa, I didn't even expect this. All I wanted to do was worship you and look at everything that you've done. That's what God will do for a man or a woman who gives themselves completely to Him. Now, it's interesting, these phrases. If you look back, we see in verse 4, the fear of God bringing God glory and then worshiping before God. Let me draw your attention back to chapter 14. You remember the eternal gospel that was proclaimed by the first angel in verse 6? Or uh, yeah, 7? What was the proclamation? Fear God. Give Him glory. Worship Him. And see, all these saints are doing is that they're saying, man, we're on that. We, we've been doing that our whole life. Ever since you came into our heart, we've been worshiping you. We've been bringing you glory and we've been walking in a wholesome fear of displeasing you. And God sees these people and he says they've had victory over the enemy. Now John sees something remarkable. He sees the opening of the temple. He says in verse 5, I looked in heaven... Uh, at the temple that is the tabernacle of the testimony and it was open and I want to just take a couple of minutes on this <clears throat> there are two words for temple in the Old Testament one is the, the, te- the temple itself the, the, the uh, outer not the outer courts but the actual temple structure but there's also another word for temple and it's called the holy of holies it's the word naos and it means that inner sanctuary that no one could go except one man once a year to bring sacrifice for the sins of the people and so the, the, the priest would go into this holy of holies. He had to go through all of this, you know, washing and cleansing and purifying. And he would go in and make sacrifice. And they, it was so deadly to go in before God that they actually put a rope around these guys' ankles in case that they didn't make it out so they could drag him out. Because they couldn't go in and get him, so they would pull the dead guy out if he, if he wasn't right before the Lord. I mean, talking about the fear of God, of displeasing the Lord. But this temple, this inter-sanctum of the presence of God is what John saw. Now, what's the significance of it? Well, the significance is twofold. The first is that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, according to Mark chapter 15, 38, in that section of scripture, we're told that when Jesus Christ died, that this three-foot thick veil, it was huge, it was thick, was torn from top to bottom. For what purpose? To signify that anyone could now have access to God himself. We didn't need a mediator. We didn't need to go through the cleansings. We didn't need to uh, be a priest. But any one of us can enter in where only one man for centuries and thousands of years could enter. And now we can go in freely. Do you realize how privileged we are? It's just unbelievable that God would allow us 
entrance into his very throne room, into his presence that for so long was prohibited except to one person once a year. But I'm telling you that is remarkable but not as remarkable as the second point. And that's that the same word, naos, this inner sanctuary, this place where the presence of God dwells, is now your heart. Naos. This is what the Bible calls it in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. You are now a naos of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you are the inner sanctuary of the very presence of God. And what you have in you through the work of Christ is precious. People couldn't even go into this temple before. Now they could go in, but not, that wasn't enough for God. He, he didn't want you to come and visit Jerusalem and to be able to go in. What he wanted to do was to visit you. And so he took up residence in our hearts. And this tabernacle of the testimony just refers to the Ark of the Covenant, which had the Ten Commandments and the Jar of Manna and, and Aaron's Rod. Now, coming out of this temple, John sees seven angels with the seven plagues dressed in clean, shining linen. Now, the shining linen was the dress code for priests. You couldn't go in unless you had clean, shining linen. We find that in Ezekiel chapter 44, verse 17. And they were also wearing golden sashes around their chests. Uh, very uh, interesting because this is the very kind of garb that Jesus Christ is wearing in Revelation chapter 113. Remember when he was walking among the lampstands, he had a robe that went down to his feet and he was wearing this gold sash around his chest. And so these, these angels are dressed appropriately for the ministry that God has called them to do. And you know, again, if I can apply this personally to us, is that Jesus says that now you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have been given fine, white, shining linen garments. And the golden sash that belongs to Christ is crossing your chest. And you are right before God. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of everything that He's done. And so he clothes us in this righteousness and that's how Jesus or the Father sees us and because of that we can enter in any time. Just a, a thought crosses through your head. We had an experience yesterday that I'll share with you briefly. It was raining. My son's birthday, Lydgate, Park, Beach, it's not looking good. And we're driving down there and my wife says, this doesn't look good. And we, we, had people, we knew people were calling us to find out if we were going to cancel this thing so we didn't even answer the phone as we were leaving the house. So we get down there and, and we're driving down and, and, and we're, we're talking about, oh, this is really, a, you know, maybe we should move it to next Sunday or maybe we should... And my little son, Johnny, says from the back seat, has anyone prayed about this? <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't. Johnny, would you pray for us? Because God answers his prayer even more than ours. So little Johnny prays, oh God, we just ask that you'd make it nice and sunny and everyone would have a great day on Michael's birthday. So we get down there. We're down there for about 45 minutes and the sun starts to break out. And the, and the rest of the whole afternoon is just hot and nice. And, and we come home and, you know, Johnny's just like, for him, it's just like, what's the big deal? God answering prayer. I mean, you know, it's like, he, that's, isn't that what he does? And Yeah, that's what he does. Of course that's what he does. But, you know, it's so wonderful to watch God answer a little boy's prayer like that and, uh, and to see him honoring it. But even my little son, Six years old can go into the presence of God clothed in the white linen of Jesus Christ and his golden sash and he can have entrance into the Father's presence and say, Dad, we'd like it to be sunny this afternoon for my brother's birthday. 
And we went home and rejoiced and prayed and worshipped God. We got down on our knees and thanked Him and, and uh, honored Him for being so good. And not only, as my son said, for blessing us, but giving everyone else on the beach a really nice day too. So John sees these four living creatures in verse 7. And one of them giving the seven angels the seven gold, uh, golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And these bowls are shallow saucers. They're, they're capable of holding quite a bit of fluid, but they're capable because of their openness to be spilled out very quickly. And of course, that's how this, uh, this spilling out of God's wrath will take place. It will happen very quickly. And it means the word filled means just to the brim. It's just like the full capacity of the wrath of God is uh, filled into these bowls. And the temple is filled with smoke as a result of the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now this smoke uh, is often seen in the Old Testament. It actually represents the presence of God. So God comes uh, in a variety of capacities. When we see Him in the Old Testament uh, leading the people of Israel, it's the pillar of cloud, uh, the pillar of smoke. I'm sorry, the pillar of uh, uh, the cloud and the pillar of fire at night. And so we see God taking up a, a, a form that people can recognize, but is not so much that His glory will just blow them away and kill them. And we find in the tabernacle when Moses built it with the people of Israel according to the specifications of God, when they actually dedicated the temple, what happened? In Exodus 40, we're told that uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And listen, Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. We see the same occurrence taking place in the temple of Solomon. When the temple was dedicated then, the same thing. The priest couldn't even go in because the glory of the Lord had filled the temple. Isaiah's commissioning, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4, we find the same glory cloud. Ezekiel 10.4, the same thing. It's really referred to in the Bibles, the Old Testament with the Hebrews as the Shekinah glory of God. It means the, the living presence of God. There's an application for us in this and that's just that God wants to just fill your life. He wants to encourage you. He wants to lift you. He wants to change you. And all He wants is a man or woman that says, fill me up. This temple is for one person only. And that's Jesus Christ. And for the presence and the power of your spirit. And he wants to fill us. And the Bible says that we should be asking him to fill us. When we receive Christ, the Bible says we receive the spirit of Christ. But he also says, in addition, that don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit. It's actually in a command form. And we can do that by making ourselves available and cleaning up, getting the temple clean of anything that's not honoring to God and making ourselves solely available for him. And it was so powerful, this this cloud of God's presence in the temple that no one could enter. You know why they couldn't enter? Was it because they were trying to get in and they just couldn't get in? No. Was it because it was locked and they couldn't? No. You know why they couldn't get in? Because they were flat on their faces worshiping God. That's why you can't get in. Because the presence of God, if you truly know God, results in worship. One of the things I would encourage you as a believer is that if you find that your life in worship is, you know, maybe not that great and you're not that motivated to, to pray and worship and you're just kind of, something's not quite right. And I'm not being critical. It's, it's happened in my own life. I, I'm sharing this to encourage you that if you don't find yourself motivated by the power and the love and the mercy and the grace of God and by His mighty works to worship, 
then you need to pray that God would fill you again and that God would change you and that God would clean out your temple of anything that's not pleasing to Him and that He might fill you once again to the full capacity of what you're able to contain with His power and His love and His presence. Now I just want to finish by saying that right now we live in a period of grace. God is offering the opportunity to every man and woman who will accept, every young person who will accept life in Christ. He's giving us that opportunity. He's giving you that opportunity not only to receive Him but to live for Him. But a time is coming when that door of opportunity will close. A time during this tribulation period when there will be no opportunity after the closing of the door a time when there will be no more invitations to follow Him, no more knocking at the door of our hearts, no more offer of adoption as His sons and daughters, no more opportunity for repentance and forgiveness, and no more offers of eternal life. It will be finished. And I want to encourage you today that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I am exhorting you to make the decision today to put Him first to give yourself to Him, to receive His forgiveness, to confess your sins, and to let Him give you the promise of eternal life. And if you're a believer, which I'm trusting that most of you are, my encouragement to you is that you not waste even a moment of the life that God has given you. Don't spend it on yourselves. Occupy yourself with the purposes and the plan of God. And God will bless you, He will lift you, and He will reward you greatly and give you victory over every enemy, over every purpose of Satan, and he will turn on its head the destructive plans that Satan has for you, and he will make you more than conquerors through Christ. Don't you want to follow him? Don't you want to love him more? Let's be a people that give ourselves unreservedly to the King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we honor you. And we glory in your name. And even while the earth will tremble during these terrible times, the saints will sing and worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But God, we pray even now that we would be occupied with your majesty and the wonder of your love and your great deeds and that we would ponder them and delight in them. And Father, allow our lives to be used for your glory and your pleasure. Take our hearts, change us, and Holy Spirit, speak to us so gently but clearly that we might do your will. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.